Hi, you're listening to Delusional Optimism with Dr. B, where we explore human resiliency and learn how people thrive even after adversity. We break down the complexities of the human brain so concepts are simple and relatable. It's fun and empowering to understand how your earliest experiences influence your relationships today. What makes you tick? Dr. B is a speaker, trainer, and consultant who understands emotions and human development from the inside out. Let's dive into today's episode. Here's Dr. B. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about the neurobiology of difference. If you're interested in furthering this conversation, please email me at contact at drbconnections.com. Or if you'd like to book a training or learn more about me, go to my website at www.drbconnections.com. This episode was recorded on May 12, 2020 during a Facebook Live series. Without further ado, let's kick it over to the episode. When people feel fear, it promotes a bias against whatever it is that whatever it is that they feel that fear against or whenever they feel that feeling of fear. So if something is scary, you want to avoid it. The brain's in service of survival. Things that are unfamiliar create this sense, this neuro response that trigger feelings of fear. Things familiar to us help us remain calm and regulated, warding off our fear and anxiety. So think about that. Like, oh yeah, things are normal. You're walking into your own house. Everything's familiar. You don't have fear and anxiety. Oh, but you're walking into some dark, scary house that's unfamiliar to you and you don't know who's inside, well, yeah, that's gonna be more scary. You're not gonna be as regulated. So what's your preference? Do you wanna walk into the place that makes you feel calm or do you wanna walk into a place that makes you feel anxiety and anxious? Well, most of us feel like we want things to feel calm so we can remain regulated. Most bias occurs on a completely unconscious, implicit level, which means that we're not even aware of it. We're not even conscious of the things that we do that are biased. So I want to start by saying that, you know, my lens is through the lens of neuroscience, child development, human development, education, and of course, Racism, equity, diversity are all things that are in my wheelhouse, but I am not an expert and I am clearly a person of dominant culture. So I need my brothers and sisters of color to, and of all colors, I say, to, you know, validate or challenge my, my information because I don't know everything, but I'm giving you some background and reason why neurologically difference scares us. All right. So bias occurs most often, not all the time, but most often bias occurs in an implicit sort of under, under the surface way. And people feel threatened. When people feel threatened, they become more consolidated and closed and, and into themselves. So their response is anxiety. Like I'm not going to I'm going to, you know, be with myself and my people. I don't want to be open and sharing when I'm feeling that way. 
not knowing what to do or how to manage the difference, that's what brings us into this sort of space of being closed off, closed off to new things, closed off to difference. So here's how the brain works, all right? We have, we've talked a little bit about the amygdala. Did anybody remember the amygdala? The amygdala is in the brain and it's the alarm center. So when something says, oh my gosh, you should be worried about that. That's your amygdala. That's like the smoke alarm in your brain going off saying, pay attention. You got to do something. Fires when unfamiliar situations in your environment show up. So that could be people who are different than you appear different than you, look different than you, that can set the amygdala off. And it can be set off at a high level or a low level, but it says, something's up, I'm uncomfortable. The amygdala then calls on the prefrontal cortex and says, oh, you know what? Hey, you gotta check this out, something's going on. There's like something different in our environment. What do we do about it? Do we need to panic? Or can we manage that difference in, you know, just a normal way and be like, oh, hey, it's not really a big deal. Shut it off. So our prefrontal cortex enlists other parts of the brain, other parts of the cortex. Like, so this part of your brain is your rational brain. It's the thinking part of your brain. Remember, we've talked about that. The limbic system is your emotional system that that it gets activated and fight flight. So, but the amygdala is the alarm center. So our prefrontal cortex then enlists other parts of the brain in the frontal area, the reasoning part of the brain, and that are better at, the amygdala can't assess the situation. It just tells us there's a problem. Now we need to access the part of the brain that can assess the situation and decide if this is real trouble or not. So this part of the brain assesses the situation and enlists the regulating system to be more rational and either calm us down or tell us, no, you need to go to the next step. This process is speedy. It is not something that we sit around and, you know, ponder over. This happens in, in, you know, milliseconds. It allows the healthy brain to quickly, quickly stop from making inappropriate prejudiced judgments or prejudiced behaviors in a situation. So let me say that again. This speedy, speedy process allows the healthy brain to quickly stop inappropriate prejudiced and biased behaviors and judgments about a situation that our amygdala was set off in. All right, key word here. I said the healthy brain. So what does a brain do when their fear of difference can't be calmed by the normal response of a functioning frontal cortex? All right, then their fear, because it can't get into the area that can calm it down, it gets in, it gets it gets hijacked and anxiety and fear escalate. Okay, so the person doesn't have the cognitive capacity to self-regulate or manage their confusion about the amygdala going off, the alarm center saying, oh, there's something in the environment, you should be worried about it, it's different than you're used to and than that's normal to you, 
what what do we do about it? Oh, we would, in a healthy situation, jump to our prefrontal cortex and let the prefrontal cortex really assess the situation. However, in a brain that doesn't have the capacity to leap to the prefrontal cortex, stays in the amygdala area and remains activated in anxiety and fear. So instead, this is this is research, okay? I'm, I'm just the messenger, so if you don't agree with this or you hate the answer that I'm going to be talking about, like, I'm just the messenger. I didn't make this, this information up. This, this is researched and studied. This is how people get sucked into fundamentalism and extremism. It's a, actually a brain chemist. It's a brain flaw. It's the inability for the amygdala to engage with the prefrontal cortex. We know this. We know this through brain imaging. We put people in MRI machines and we look at how their brain responds and where that where the activation goes when the amygdala is set off. And what we find in studies is they found a link between impaired functioning of the prefrontal lobes and religious fundamentalism. All right, so this is not a causation. This doesn't mean that, oh, the brain, having a prefrontal cortex problems causes you to be a religious fundamentalist, all right? That's not, or an extremist in some way. But there is a strong connection, and it's scientifically based. Like I said, I don't make this stuff up. There's a relationship between brain dysfunction and religious extremism, intolerance for people who are different, and sometimes also called racism. Okay, let's think for a second about extremism, like the extremes of, you know, fundamentalist religions, extremes in terms of racism, and then our marginalized communities, the LGBTQ community, any marginalized racial community, African-American men are obviously a target of this. But women and men, you know, there's power differentials all over the place, but this prefrontal cortex issue, have you ever heard about it? Did anybody ever say, whoa, somebody's acting like crazy because maybe there is a problem in their brain? So we know two things that are certain. The brain, when functioning properly, can and will regulate and make sense out of differences. The brain is, the brain is amazing and it will make sense out of differences and integrate the information in a cognitively organized way. So we don't need to avoid differences. When, when we're healthy and our brain is functioning properly, our brain can absolutely manage and handle lots of differences because we allow it to recognize it as different, but then, we, then we're able to integrate it into our brain in a way that says, oh yeah, that's different, but it's great. Yeah, that's good. You know, I can eat tacos and I can eat Thai food and I can eat a hamburger and I can like all of them. None of them are dangerous, but they're all different. People who look different than me 
are not dangerous or bad. That's what our brain says. Just because somebody looks different doesn't make them dangerous or bad. Our brain allows us to say, oh, they look different, but we also can share a lot of similarities and I need more information. Maybe they are good. Maybe they're not good. Maybe they are bad. There are bad people in the world. Doesn't have to do with their the characteristics that make them look different has to do with the different ways they behave. So yes, I know people are going to hate hearing this or they're going to love hearing this, but yes, we do have a psychological explanation for racism. There is a psychological reason in the brain that it is, that it acts upon racist behavior. That's a hard pill to swallow. Uh, imagine being a person of color who has lived in and, and been oppressed by a group of people who have neurologic dysfunction. That's what I'm saying is that this is a neurologic dysfunction in the brain and yet the power of this dominant group is oppressing another group. It's pretty terrifying and it's terrifying, but it's also infuriating. And I say that as a white woman and I can't even imagine the level of just fury. I mean, I already feel like I have fury because I have so many people that I care and love who are un who have been oppressed and and treated terribly because of racism. So now this is not just a black white issue. This is not this there is no race that has the corner market on this type of neurological dysfunction. So I'm not saying that, oh, all white people are bad or, oh, all black people are good or, oh, all black people are bad or, oh, you know, women are better than men or any of that. We're not picking and choosing groups. This is an individual characteristic. Nobody has the corner market on neurological abnormalities, but the consequences of not acknowledging that extremism in this form of religious fundamentalism or racism is a problem creates a myriad of negative consequences across our society and actually flies counter to our attempts at building resilient, healthy, loving communities, which is what I care most about. Think about that. I want that to sink in a little bit. The consequences of not acknowledging that extremism in the form of fundamentalist religion, in the form of racism, is a problem that creates a myriad of social problems that make it hard or maybe even impossible to build healthy, resilient communities. Janelle wrote a comment, and when members are part of a dominant and privileged group who do not have experiences that marginalized groups experiences, it's very hard to be mindful or sensitive to it. Absolutely. And that's the implicitness, Janelle. Thank you for pointing that out and, and commenting on that because most people are not neurologically impaired. However, 
most people do have implicit biases that they're not necessarily aware of. So I would recommend highly that anybody who cares about this topic or bias in general and being a fair and conscious, aware person of your own personal biases, you will go to the Harvard Implicit Bias Test. It's free. It's online. You can, you can check your bias in relation to a myriad of groups. There, there are Asian Americans, black, Muslim, men and women, gay, lesbian, trans, questioning, LGBT, bi. So there, there are a, a whole set of tests that you can take that will measure your implicit bias against a particular group and say, oh, wow, yeah, I do. I'm pretty much sure that most people who are white dominant culture, when you take the implicit bias test, black and white, the way the brain works and the way our systems have been organized, there's just no way you can't help but have implicit bias and have the initial alarm center sound when you're exposed to a black male walking down a street. Now, the beauty of that is that we can rewire our brain. When we have awareness of how our brain was trained by our uh, the undercurrents of all our social messaging that came across our lives, then we can rewire the brain so that we say, oh, wow, that's me. That person is, is, is fine and is a perfectly nice person. It's about ourselves. It's about looking inward and taking responsibility for our biases. Janelle, having, having had to raise a terminally ill child with physical disabilities, it did not occur to me how paramount wheelchair access is in restaurants and everywhere we go until I had a son with a wheelchair, which is why teaching empathy and compassion is such a highly important skill, and we teachers and parents must teach our children. I'm so glad you said that, Janelle, because tomorrow we're going to talk about the topic is empathy and diversity because there's this carries over into empathy and a whole lot of other neuropsychological ways of being in the world that we really have access to this information now. And so we need to be using it in a smart way to build our societies and build and raise resilient communities and children and families that are supportive. Okay, so this is not an easy topic, but I'm the messenger of neuroscience um, of difference. I'm not, I didn't create this, I'm the messenger. So the upside is that the brain is, has a lot of plasticity to it, which means that we're capable of rewiring our brain. We're capable of changing the way we think about something or do something when we practice it and we bring it, we bring it to awareness and we become conscious of it. So the upside is that the brain is up for rewiring. If someone suffers this way, they can heal, but any, like anything, they have to want to change. 
and they have to be willing to work at that change and work at rewiring the brain. So how does this happen? How does this happen? A person becomes aware of their implicit bias. And so now being a person who's aware of implicit bias and knowing how cultures, how we have a dominant culture that messages out that there, one way is better than another way, being aware of that, we raise it to consciousness. And now this will come up tomorrow a lot in the empathy discussion. But when we have little tiny babies whose brains are wiring to survive in the environment that they're going to live in, well, guess what? We can take responsibility and and provide our babies with experiences of differences because the more experiences babies have with a loving, caring attachment, we're not saying pass the baby around, we're saying with the baby's loving attachment figure that they're regulated to, we expose children to lots of different people who they're able to maintain their regulation with because it's not scary, it's just different. And that builds into their brain that difference is good. It's not something that needs to sound the alarm on high. It's just something that we're aware of. Oh, people are different, it's okay, it's no big deal. Foods are different, it's okay, no big deal. And so what we do, that's how we do this. We start with our littlest citizens. We start with our babies, but we also have to have an awareness of ourselves in order to make that a priority. And if we wanna have resilient, healthy, strong, culturally inclusive communities, then we have to start thinking from a neurobiological level and how to do that. All right, so I'm gonna use the example because in honor of Ahmad Arbery, I said his name yesterday wrong, so I apologize for that. I thought that it was Aubrey. Um, so Mr. Arbery, who lived in the South, where there is a continuous reenactment of the historical trauma of Southern whites that continue to control black men because it's epigenetic, because that trauma from, from slavery is, has been passed on from generation to generation. It's an attempt to, uncon it's unconsciously righting the wrong of slavery because they're not conscious of the wrong. They continue to search for false reasons to hunt and harm this group, black men. And we've seen this, we've seen this in our, I mean, in our lives. There is a hunting that is going on of black men and it's perpetuated often in the South, not exclusively, but often. And it is a remnant of slavery and this epigenetic tag that's carried on. And the way I view it as it's, a way of making something that's so wrong feel like it's right by making it seem like this different black men are doing terrible things so we have to hunt and kill them. Okay, dysfunction neurological 
issue needs to be addressed, can't be continually carried out as our dominant belief that that's, that's okay or that it's just such a surface issue that, oh, they made a mistake. They thought he was looking at a house or they thought he was breaking into a car or he had a hoodie on. These are not reasons. These are not neurologically sound ways for the brain to function. So that screams dysfunction and we don't let people who have neurological dysfunction run major systems that are built to protect people like law enforcement, criminal justice systems, schools. We don't let that happen. Or if if we don't, we do let it happen and we should not let that happen. We should base people's ability on their neurological functioning. So this can happen with any group. I'm using Arbery as an example because I'm, I'm still, like many people, just so rattled by that video and that whole, just, it's, a, it's such a nightmare. I just can't imagine. I just can't. I can't imagine how devastating that is, not only for his family, his mama, and, but just, uh, just the community at, in general, because it's it's just sick. And literally, that is what it is. It is sick, neurologically sick. All right. But this can happen with other groups for exactly the same reasons. That this is why it's so important for us to know about implementing a system that identifies the neurobiological capacity that somebody has and we're going to continue to pass on the impact of this trauma from slavery forward across generations not only socially but epigenetically so we have the capacity now today folks to really look at at our neurobiological system that's been impacted by social influences. So that's our cause and curse and invitation to change and to build resilient, healthy relationships, families, and communities when we start to recognize that these extremist fringe ways of thinking are not necessarily number one conscious. They're not super conscious. So there's not really a whole lot of point to arguing. But as a society, we have to recognize this extremism as functionally problematic in the brain. There's a brain dysfunction. And I don't know that I've ever heard anybody even talk about it like that. But but when I was reading the research around this, I thought, Oh my, this is really important for the general public to recognize and know so you can step back and say, would I really want to engage somebody who's neurologically dysfunctional? Maybe it does make more sense to walk away, even in anger, than to engage, engage that. And we have to start to put into place systems that pull that component out of our society and give and take the power away. So 
I don't know exactly all the ways we're going to do that, but I can, I will commit to this that I am on the front line of supporting this kind of conversation and standing with everyone in terms of not letting our world be hijacked by the extremists who live and die for hate. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I appreciate the opportunity to connect with you. If you're interested in booking a training, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at my website, Dr. B Connections. There's a big button that says, book a training with Dr. B. It's that easy. If this show has been beneficial for you, please share it with your friends and family. Spreading the word about the show helps us grow our audience and helps continue to change the world together. Again, thanks so much for listening to Delusional Optimism. Now, go leave a life print.